0: Hey everybody, welcome to your unit three review. Um, I'm gonna try and bring some energy, but uh, I'm also feeling like crap right now. So uh, I'm at the time same time of trying to, to get this done. I'm just trying to get it done, if you know what I mean. So, uh, all right, if you haven't found the review, so if you're listening to this on a Tuesday afternoon and you didn't get a review from me, uh, a paper copy, you can find it on eClass. It's a Google Doc on there. It's in the activity feed. Uh, Or hopefully you you might, if you were in class, you should have a paper copy. All right. So let's get rolling. So the voting rights section, and I've broken the test down into these different sections because we kind of did it that way uh, with your virtual museum assignment. So you got the voting rights, which was our DLD day stuff. Then we get into the political party. So it's separate on the test. And then so on and so forth. So just, you'll see it and get it. Uh, all right, so first up, the Voting Rights Act in 1965. So this is one of those pieces of legislation that you had to look at um, on the DLD day. And I know it's a long time ago. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But you got to understand why. And so the whole thing about voting rights and this whole section, the overarching theme was, hey, how have we expanded the rights to vote, how we expanded the electorate, okay? And those are just people that are eligible to vote. And so the Voting Rights Act was a pretty important uh, piece of legislation back in the civil rights era that's going to basically, basically uh, attempt to make it uh, safer and easier um, for African Americans to, to, to not only register to vote, uh, but also to vote, okay? I mean, they, you know, African Americans had gotten the right to vote with the 15th Amendment way back in 1867, eight, somewhere in there, uh, but we know uh, from U.S. history days that the South had really, you know, made it very difficult, uh, and that's probably an understatement um, for African Americans to vote. So the Voting Rights Act is going to uh, attempt to make it uh, to where some of the barriers that were in place, um, registration things. Whole taxes, whatever you want to call it, uh, any of those kinds of barriers. You can probably think of some off the top of your head since you're all A push uh, scholars. Uh, all right, the next question is about the voting uh, rights amendments. And so on our DLD day, you had a list of amendments to go through. So maybe look back at that. Uh, I never took that copy from you because it was a a digital thing. So you turned it in and you should still have a copy somewhere. Um, So you do have to know the amendments uh, and what they did. All right. So first up, the first one is the 15th amendment, which you already touched on. And that's going to give African American males uh, the right to vote. (coughs) Suffrage. Uh, The 17th Amendment is going to be direct election of our senators. So up to this point in 1913, uh, it's key to remember that the state legislatures had picked our senators. We did not have the right and the ability as citizens to pick our senators. They were picked for us. Uh, And so the 17th Amendment is going to fix that and um, let us pick our senators. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. Uh, Remember, this was a right that they had been working for for a long time, um, And finally got it in 1919. So the women uh, have the right to vote suffrage uh, in 1919 with the 19th Amendment. Uh, The 24th Amendment, (coughs) I'm so sorry. The 24th Amendment is uh, the poll taxes. So it is an amendment to the Constitution that says, hey, you can't do poll taxes anymore. Remember, this was a barrier that the South had placed uh, on African-Americans through much of the the history uh, where they were trying to stop African-Americans from voting. And then finally is the 26th Amendment, which is going to give 18-year-olds the right to vote, so it drops the age from, from 21 to 18. And this really started back in 1945 or so uh, with um, Americans you know, being drafted at 18 and sent off to, to fight and potentially die for their country, but they couldn't, um, they couldn't vote when they got back. So uh, it started way back then, the movement did, and it finally came to fruition in the 1970s, maybe like 72 or so. So the main thing to remember there is all of those uh, are going to uh, expand the electorate. So more people are going to get the right to vote with those things. Okay, Uh, moving on to political parties. So um, the responsibilities of political parties is what's first up on your... um, review guide. So let's just run through the things that are there. First off is voter mobilization and education. So we could almost split this up. I could have done two separate things here, but I put them together because to me, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, The voter mobilization is trying to get people out to vote. Uh, If you check your mail uh, over the next month, you'll probably see something from a party uh, about, hey, election day's coming up. In fact, I got something today uh, from both the Democrats and the Republicans saying, hey, election day's coming out. Have you Uh, registered to vote, and uh, you should vote for this person, okay? So voter mobilization is encouraging people to register to vote, encouraging people to go out and vote, Um, and then the education part is making them aware of basically the candidate stances, all right, and they're going to do both sides. So the Republicans are going to point out what the Democrats are trying to do, the Democrats are going to try and point out what the Republicans want to do, and they're hoping that you can make a decision uh, based off that. Uh, Organizing interests within society. So uh, this is kind of a broad thing, all right? And that's a very broad word there, thing. Um, but just, you know, sometimes people need something to identify with. And if you're left-leaning, you have the Democratic Party to go associate with. If you're right-leaning, you have the Republican Party to go, to go um, align with. Uh, campaigns. So hopefully you've seen throughout the virtual museum, that parties, you know, are going to work on the campaigns. They're going to raise money. Uh, They're going to uh, spend money. Uh, They're going to spend a lot of money. You you saw in the Google doc that told you what you had to do for the virtual museum. The last thing was the spending um, that the the, the, the elections and the the 2020 election, how much spending over $14 billion. So there's going to be a ton of money spent on these campaigns, but they're going to help assist, they'll send volunteers. Uh, There'll be volunteers from both the Democrats and the Republicans down here in Georgia for the Senate race, for the House races, for the governor race. They'll be across the board uh, around the the nation uh, out there working campaigns. And the candidate recruitment is the final thing there. Uh, And this is something uh, that's kind of a developmental thing that they do. So they're constantly looking for the next big candidate. So who's someone that can run uh, on our ticket in years to come? And so that's something that they'll do. They will look for people. Maybe they're uh, at a job at the federal government. Maybe they're at a job in the state government, and they recognize that they align with the, <coughs> the Democrats or the Republicans. And so, you know, maybe, hey, let's, let's get you to run uh, for a city council position or for a mayor but Let's get you started somewhere down there, all right, at, at a lower level, at the local level, and let's kind of guide you, and we'll build you up to eventually where you can run for, you know, whatever they, they prop them up to do, the House, the Senate, maybe the President. All right, the difference between the political parties and interest groups, um, the big thing here, all right, is that political parties, remember, they have to be worried about every single issue. They are very broad uh, in their issues, whereas interest groups, they only worry about their one thing. So political parties, you know, when you think about all the things that are going on in America now, social, monetary, uh, foreign problem, all these kinds of problems that are going on. Political parties and candidates have to be concerned. They have to have an answer for all those things. So when one of our Senate senators or challengers for the Senate goes around Georgia and is taking questions, they have to be able to respond to everything. They can't say, well, that's not mine. I'm not worried about it. Uh, versus an interest group who, first off, they're not going to run a candidate. Remember, they just want to influence the government um, by you know getting – I don't want to say Congress people in their back pocket, but that's kind of what it feels like sometimes. They want to get people in office that are comfortable with them, that they're comfortable with, and that they can work together. But they're only concerned about the one single issue that is whatever it might be, whether it's pro-life, pro-choice, gun control, uh, (coughs) pro-gun rights, whatever it might be. uh, They are only worried about that one single issue. All right, third parties. Now, there is a chart that you have to be able to read, so just be aware of that. But third parties, uh, remember, a lot of people, we've done some cartoons with our openers, uh, and just remember, you know, people really sometimes feel like you're throwing away your vote when you vote for a third party. So they might have a little... Success, a little bit of traction, but at the end of the day, more than likely a third-party candidate is going to be really limited in what they can do because people are just not going to vote for them, okay? And a lot of that has to do with something we'll get into a little bit later, which is the winner-take-all versus the proportional system. Remember, most states, 48 of them, are going to require a candidate to just get a simple majority. And once they get a majority (coughs) of a state's um, votes, then they've won they've won all the delegates from that state. So Georgia, we have 16. Um, Texas has 38. So once someone gets all just over 50%, they win. Okay. Uh, there's a chart question, like I said, and so um, the lack of success. And remember, you know, if they can get a, a platform picked up, then they're going to feel in pretty good shape. OK, so they're going to feel in pretty good shape if they can get something. One of their pieces of their agenda for the, the major parties to pick up and say, hey, we want to we like that. Uh, then they're they're going to kind of feel successful uh, when it comes to, to those votes. All right. Um, let's see. All right. Getting into political parties, change and adapt. So uh, hopefully you recognized how. When you did the case study between 1860 and 2016, you recognized that uh, it's a totally different system. Back in 1860, when Lincoln was running for the presidency, he went to the National Convention. He had not campaigned whatsoever uh, at a national level. Okay, so he had not (coughs) campaigned and um, he was dependent upon the delegates at the National Convention versus 2016 where you had Um, Bernie Sanders and um, Hillary Clinton and a couple other Democrats, along with about 15, 20 Republicans going out amongst the states and trying to get votes. Okay. Uh, So it has really switched gears from, okay, the parties get to do everything. They get to make all the decisions about uh, who's going to be the candidate for the president to now we're really uh, the opposite. And we as citizens get to pick and therefore we're going to pick the people who, who we really like. And the candidates platform that we like. It might be aligned with the the political parties, but at the end of the day, it is going to be their uh, issues. All right. Moving on to interest groups. All right. So interest group activities. (coughs) So uh, lobbying is something that interest groups will do. Remember, lobbying is where a interest group, and it could be a business, it could be a corporation, a church whoever has a stake in pieces of legislation that are going before Congress, they will hire individuals whose job it is to go to the Congress, okay, and go to specific people that can affect change on these bills. Typically, it's on committees and work on them and try and convince them, hey, we really don't like this bill. Can you do something to it? Can you stop it? Can you make this change to it? Can you make that change to it? All right. Now, keep in mind, interest groups and lobbyists are not going and working on people who are against them all right the nra is not sending lobbyists to uh pro-gun control congress people saying hey we want you to make these changes they're people that have already been elected that are sympathetic to the the pro-gun side okay just like people on the the gun control side are not sending people to politicians congress people that are pro-gun all right they're sending people to congress they're sending lobbyists to congress people that are um, going to be you know, sympathetic to their their desires and their wishes when it comes to, to gun control. All right. Um, so Congress, they'll also uh, lobby federal agencies, but they do that a little bit differently. There's not the money aspect when it comes to federal agencies because those, those bureaucratic agents, they're not looking to take money in cash. Uh, it's more of a kind of a watchdog function where we're going to watch, as an interest group, we're going to watch the the agencies uh, that are in charge of our areas. So if I'm an environmental group, then I'm keeping a pretty close eye on the EPA, and I'm going to have a pretty good relationship with the EPA uh, if I'm able to, because I want to make sure that they're enforcing the rules and the laws that I want to see. Campaigning, uh, interest groups are going to do something called electioneering, and that is basically where they are going to spend a lot of money Uh, because interest groups raise money. They're almost like political parties in that regard. They're going to raise money, and they can only donate a certain amount to the candidates. So a lot of it is going to be just, okay, we know that this candidate is sympathetic to our needs and wants, so let's run some campaign ads for them. you you, You cannot work with the the uh, politicians, but you can run commercials. You can you know, buy up TV time, radio time. You can send out flyers. Uh, you'll probably get some uh, from some different organizations. Okay, uh, Donations, we just kind of touched on that. Interest groups are limited. They are uh, restricted on how much money they can give to candidates. Uh, however, once again, they can spend almost as much as they want to on campaigns. And when I say campaigns, that means the ads, the flyers, the commercials, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, testifying. So, uh, as weird as it sounds, um, the interest groups are experts in their areas, okay? And so they will go before Congress occasionally, whenever a piece of legislation comes before a, a Congress, both on the Senate and the House, and they might answer questions. <clears throat> Maybe um, I'm on the Agricultural Committee, and I get a bill in front of me that is discussing uh, making it to where uh, this new fertilizer can be added uh, to the soil. And I don't know anything about that. Let me call in this interest group that I'm familiar with, that I know that are experts, and they'll be able to tell me some information. Now, I might call on the other side as well, so I get both sides and I can make a decision for myself. But it is something that they can do. And then we've already talked about the political ads. It's a piece of, uh, of stuff that the, the interest groups will do you had to find some. Uh, It might've been from some interest groups. It might've been from political parties, but you you found some of those ads. Uh, All right. Large interest groups versus small interest groups. This is just basically the haves and the have nots. There are some interest groups out there that have more than others do. Uh, And so the large interest groups are going to have more money, more resources, and they can sometimes outspend um, the the smaller interest groups. All right. We've already talked about lobbying and the actions that they do. Uh, They will spend money They will, you know, that's one of the biggest tools they have is that they have access to interest group cash. They can also assist with fundraising and things like that. Uh, They also have contacts. You know, you don't, you're probably not going to graduate from college, you know, with a political science degree and say, you know what, I'm going to be a lobbyist. It's going to be a tough, you know, tough road because you don't have any contacts. No one has it, you don't have an in. So a lot of these lobbyists do turn out to be former congresspeople. All right, the Iron Triangles. So the Iron Triangles is a relationship between uh, the interest groups, the committees that align with the interest groups' interests. Okay, I know that's that's not a... Interest groups and interests. But uh, they'll... They have a relationship, and then also the federal bureaucratic agencies. So there's this interconnected relationship, and we're going to go over it in a little more detail when we get to the Congress section and also when we go over the bureaucracy. Uh, I chose to go ahead and put it in here because it does show up in all of our different standards for the three different areas. So I want you to introduce it. Hopefully by the end, uh, it'll really start to make sense to you. But it's just the relationship. So interest groups giving money to Congress, uh, committees, excuse me, uh, committees giving time to the interest group lobbyists, the watchdog function on the bureaucratic agencies, and all those sorts of things. Okay? Uh, The free rider. I'm a free rider. All right? Uh, I refuse to pay any money to any teaching group that's out there. And there are several several here in Georgia. I refuse to pay any money uh, to them okay? But guess what? If they ever negotiate a higher salary, uh, an extra planning period, free lunches for teachers, they can't stop me from enjoying the benefits, even though I've never contributed. If an environmental group uh, cleans up the ocean, and all of a sudden it's safer, and uh, it has regenerative powers now, and it'll make my back feel better, and make this uh, head cold that I got going on go away if I just go swim in the ocean, they can't stop me from swimming in the ocean, okay? Uh, So the free rider is when people Take advantage of interest groups and their work because interest groups can't stop them. Now, what do they do? Sometimes uh, they will offer you know, freebies or discounts <coughs> to members to people who have paid. So they'll oftentimes try and work out relationships with airline airlines, uh, rental car companies, hotels, and things like that. All right, uh, there is a chart that you'll have to look at and uh, answer, and then there's a couple of other questions about some specific. Uh, but it's scenario-driven, and I think you'll be able to figure out the answers uh, as you go. All right. Um, Elections. So, on the back, first off is the incumbency advantage. So, the incumbent has several different advantages. Probably one of the big ones is the fact that they have name recognition, okay? And that means that when uh, you go to the ballot box in November, there's a good chance you'll recognize the person who has been in office, Whether that's a positive or negative, I don't know. But you'll recognize their name. And so that plays a big role because people don't want to vote for people they don't know about. Okay? Um, The other thing is they're going to get uh, more money. Okay? Typically, uh, they're going to get um, uh, contributions. Uh, People are going to donate to the winners, the people that have been there in office. Okay? Um, And credit claiming is another big one. So... um, yeah, and what credit claiming is is they can say, "Hey, I've done this." Versus a challenger, they can't say that. Okay, they have they have no power there. Um, so those are the two big ones: the the money, the credit claiming, the name recognition. Um, so there we go. Okay, um, campaign strategies: presidential and congressional. So the presidential candidate, uh, remember, they have to run two different can uh, two different kind of campaigns. First off, they have the primaries where they're campaigning against their party. So, you know, the Democrats will have it kind of easy if they, if Joe, if Joe Biden decides to, to run uh, in 2024, uh, which he said that he, he will, then the Democrats will probably pick him and he won't have to run in the primary. So he won't have to spend money, resources and all that kind of stuff. However, the Republicans are going to have to pick a candidate. So they're going to have to go across the country campaigning and getting support uh, for uh, their their run to the presidency. Okay. Um, so it's going to, to take some time and some money and effort, uh, to get that done. Now, once it's Democrat versus Republican, uh, then they switch gears. Okay. And then it's all about the electoral college and we got to make decisions based on the electoral college and, you know, where are some swing states? where are states that are battlegrounds? Uh, I know that I probably got Texas locked up as a Republican. I probably got California locked up as a Democrat. So I might not spend so much time there, but I really need to go to those states where, hey, it's a flip of a coin there, okay? All right, the primary. So a primary, this is what we were talking about when it's Republican versus Republican or Democrat versus Democrat. And this is where you will go vote for the, the party candidate that you want to run for the president on your side, all right? So if you're uh, a big Republican, you will go vote in the Republican primary. Uh, I don't think, like I said, I don't think the Democrats will make Joe Biden run unless something happens weird. If they do, then as a Democrat, you might be able to go vote for your Democratic candidate that you want to see run in 2024. Um, but it's your typical election, okay? Uh, you're going to go, you'll cast a ballot. Um, uh, the Republicans do winner take all the Democrats, they do proportional, so they will split up. So if it's me and you, uh, I get 70% and you get 30%, then I will get 70% of the delegates. You would get 30. Okay. Now you got open and closed open primary is where either side can go vote. So here's the Republican primary in Georgia. Uh, we are an open state unless something changes, uh, then everybody, Democrat, Republican, independent can go vote in that Republican primary. Now, some places will close their primaries, and that means you have to be a registered Republican or a registered Democrat to go vote. Reason for this is there's a fear among some places that if they let both sides come in and vote for the candidates, you know, uh, let's say I'm running as a Republican. Well, here come all the Democrats, and they're like, let's vote for that Chris Daniels guy. He's the worst candidate in the history. If he gets the nomination on the Republican side, we'll tear him up. We'll win very easily. So they, there's a fear for both sides when they have a closed primary, that they're going to uh, kind of sabotage the other side. Uh, All right, the caucuses, and I hate that word. I really, really do. But uh, that is, it's different from the primary. Uh, This is where you take a day, maybe a Saturday, and you would go to a gym or a church or, or somewhere where there's a big auditorium, basically. And you will have people from the candidates speaking, trying to convince you who to vote for. All right, And at the end of the day, you'll go sit with the group that you want to go vote for. So it's really out there and it's open. It takes a long time. I personally, if Georgia was to switch to this, I would not go vote. Alright, the winner-take-all versus the proportional. I already talked about this on the primary side. Remember, Republicans are winner-take-all. So if you get the the majority of the the votes in the states, then you do get uh, all the uh, delegates from that state. Democrats are going to be um, uh, proportional where it's by the numbers. So if you get 50-50, then it's 50-50 split. Now, the Democrats do have something called superdelegates, and those are people that are not going to be uh, required to vote um, with the regular delegates. So if I'm a superdelegate from Georgia, I basically can vote however I want to, okay? Superdelegates tend to be former governors, congresspeople, just uh, people that... It's trying to bring a legitimacy to the to the uh the process okay now the electoral college remember is mostly proportional we already talked about that <coughs> excuse me so uh, if you get a majority uh, you're typically going to get uh all the votes okay so if you get the majority you're going to get all the votes all right last thing is campaign finance and it's the last thing you've been working on in your um in your virtual museum First off is the McCain-Feingold Act, and the McCain-Feingold Act, uh, it could also be called the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, okay? I call it McCain-Feingold just because it's much easier to say McCain-Feingold than it is to say all that stuff that I just said, the Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act, and bipartisan just means it's from both sides, okay? Um... And it did a couple of things. Uh, first off, the big one that they attempted to do was to ban soft money, which is at the end of this review. But just soft money is just the the money that's not regulated. So it can be donated, and uh, there's really no record of it, okay? Uh, they're going to create the uh, Stand By Your ad. So if you'll pay attention to the ads that are being running, uh, you're probably going to hear uh, someone say, I'm such and such, and I support this ad. It means you can't just run an attack ad. And kind of, you know, not put your name to it. All right, Citizens United. So the last thing you had to do in the virtual museum. So hopefully you've read the, the kind of the case brief about the what caused the decision. Uh, in this, Citizens United was an interest group. We watched the trailer to the movie they were trying to run. Hillary, the movie, and it was really an attack piece on Hillary Clinton back in 2007, right before she was getting ready to run in the Democratic primaries against Barack Obama and John Edwards. And so uh, it comes out that Citizens United had, in fact, taken money from some different interest groups, businesses and corporations and things like that, and it got called into question on whether uh, they could take money from those organizations and still participate in ads such as they were running. And it got into some stuff about releasing it in the theaters versus it being digital format and things like that. We're really not going to get into the weeds on that. Uh, We just got to know that the ad got stopped. Okay. And so it goes to court. Citizens United is going to challenge that. And it's eventually going to get to the Supreme Court. And the main takeaway from this, and it was a close decision, 5-4. You're reading the majority opinion. Some of you are. And some of you are reading the dissent dissenting opinion, but the winning side, the majority side eventually said and concluded that the money being spent, that's a a form of freedom of speech. And so you can't take that away because it's protected under the first amendment's freedom of speech, uh, part of the the first amendment. And so businesses and corporations and, and different groups like that were allowed and are allowed to donate money. Um, and, kind of, you know, it it opens up a lot of things uh, for them to give money to different organizations and different groups, uh, and for those groups and organizations to do different things with it when it comes to electioneering. All right, last couple things there, the PACs, political action committees. So political action committees, uh, these are groups because there have been limitations placed on individuals. There's been limitations placed on interest groups. uh, Just everybody has been limited to how much they can donate. I can't remember what the individual limitation is. It might be around six thousand, seven thousand, something like that. So if I have that much cash, which I don't, uh, I can donate it to a candidate that I wanted to, and then I'm done. I'm out. Now I can donate it to multiple candidates, uh, but I can't donate more to that one particular candidate. All right. But I have extra money that I want to go give to this person. So people find ways around things, and so they donated money to these. Organizations, the political action committees that they created, and so now I give money to them, and they turn around and they give the money that I had that I gave to them. They give it, so it's a workaround uh, to the the different candidates. Okay, uh, they've been limited since then. So now a lot of the PACs are going to spend money, <coughs> electioneering, and trying to, um, you know, influence uh, elections through ads. Uh, and things like that. And anybody can start a PAC interest group, businesses, uh, individuals, uh, most of the politicians like Donald Trump has, has PACs. Uh, Mitch McConnell has PACs. Uh, just, you know, probably almost everybody has PACs and they use that money to help candidates that they like and that they support. Okay. And then the final thing on your, um, what's that thing called? The review is the hard money versus the soft money and hard money is the money that is regulated. So if I give money to a candidate, so you're running for uh, office and I give you $20, you have to record it and say, it's from this person and it has to be tracked. Okay. We're going to spend it here. So hard money is money that has to be tracked. Soft money is money that goes to political parties. It's the money that's not tracked. So, hey, I could donate. Had I won the billion dollar lottery uh, a while back, first off, you wouldn't be hearing me talk. Uh, on this podcast because I'd be retired. But had I wanted, I could donate whatever money I wanted to, to the political parties. And it'd be soft money because there's no record of it. And I could donate as much as I wanted to. Okay. Uh, So hard money is going to be uh, tracked, regulated. The soft money is not tracked and not regulated. Now we do get into hard money sometimes, but not here. Uh, That is, excuse me, not hard money, but dark money. That's the money that's, we don't know where it comes from. Okay. Now you do end the test with a couple of infographics about money and spending and things like that. So just be aware that you will have some some graphs and charts and stuff like that to read on this test. All right, guys, uh, I'm sorry for the coughing. I'm sorry for the voice being going out. Uh, I tried to bring uh, as much energy to this thing as possible. Uh, Hopefully you bared through it and you got the information you needed and you can do as well on the test as possible. We will take this test on Wednesday, the 5th, the day before fall break. Hopefully you're there to get this thing knocked out so you don't have to worry about it when we get back. All right, guys, uh, as always, text me on Talking Points, email me, uh, social media, C-H-H-S, gov underscore civics at both Instagram and Twitter, and I'll be happy to respond to you, uh, whichever works for you. Just let me, however I can hook up with you and get the information to you. All right, guys, take care, uh, and I'll see you uh, in class. Bye-bye.